right, well, Merry Christmas. Let me give a warm welcome to everybody who's with us at downtown East Effingham, Midway, Statesboro, here in the room here at Henderson, and everybody participating at Compassion Online. Man, we love you guys. We're glad we could be together today. Glad we're together to celebrate Christmas together. Can I hear amen? amen? That's right. Come on, man. Come on. We're celebrating the birth of Jesus. Man, we've been in this Christmas series that we're calling The Chosen. Uh, and I'm going to tell you there's a good reason for that. God chose everybody in the Christmas story on purpose, for a purpose, and he is still choosing people today. Still. Now, one of the discoveries I made in this study uh, about er is about everybody in the Christmas story started out with a road trip. Do you know that? Uh, man, I remember the first Christmas road trip I took with my little family. Uh, my Sarah and I took our four-month-old baby uh, and my mother and my brother with us to Montana to celebrate Christmas with her family. And friends, let me tell you, that was a memorable trip. We started out that adventure with Sarah slipping on the ice on the top step of our concrete steps going out of our back door. Uh, she landed hard on her back. And can I just tell you, that was not a good start. Uh, then we were late for our uh, flight into Charlotte, and a flight out of Charlotte, so we had to rebook with another airline. Did I mention we had 13 bags and a baby on that trip? That was a lot to move, man, I'm telling you. And when we got on the plane, we sat down, we're like, praise the Lord. And they pushed us back from the gate, and then we sat on the runway for 45 minutes. And I'm like, what in the world is going on? Dude, we're going to miss our flight out of Chicago. Dude, when we got to O'Hare, we were so late. We had to run through that airport like maniacs. I'm carrying a baby and a bunch of baby bags, and Sarah's limping, and Mom and Rick are trying to keep up. We look like the Griswolds on a Christmas adventure, I'm telling you. When we finally arrived in Montana, we found ourselves in the middle of a huge winter snowstorm. Uh, for those of you who are, you know, from the South, that's, uh, it looks like grits, falls like rain, but it's made out of ice, okay? But man, I'm telling you, it took seven hours in a car for all of us to get to our destination. And I'm not talking about a minivan, that hadn't been invented yet. We're in a sedan, four-door sedan, seven of us. And then Sarah's crazy cousin and one of his buddies came to pick us up and they drove us back through a pass where there were avalanche warnings, which is news I could have used before we got in the car. And then he introduced us to some new words to describe an unexpected elk standing in the middle of the road when you come around a curve. Now, I'd actually heard those words before, but not quite in that combination. So I learned some new things, which I thought was, that was a you know, positive. But when we finally arrived at our destination, we had such an incredible stay and such an amazing family reunion uh, in that winter wonderland that I'm just telling you, we still cherish the memories of that road trip 30-something years later. Now, friends, as crazy as that sounds, that's not too different from the road trips that we see in the Christmas story. I mean, think about it. Joseph and Mary have to make a long road trip to Bethlehem. She's in the last days of her pregnancy. When they get into town, everything is booked up. So Joseph's got to scramble to find a place for him to camp out, and then the baby comes. Now, when you're thinking about any story in the Scripture or anything that's happening in your life, friends, it would be very helpful for you to begin to think in terms of a lower story and an upper story. Now, the lower story is just what's happening. It's the circumstances. It's what actually happened. But the upper story is how God is working in your life as you live through the lower story. Now, whether you can see him working or not, whether you can feel him working or not, is unimportant. He is working in your lower story all the time. Now, the lower story for Joseph and Mary was, we've got to go to Bethlehem because of taxation. The upper story was, they had to go there to fulfill a prophecy that was made by the prophet Micah 700 years earlier. And we're going to read that in just a minute. But Micah predicted that the Son of God would be born in Bethlehem, and they lived in Nazareth. And so, man, for that prophecy to come true, they had to go south, and they did. 
Now, friends, one of the reasons we believe in the authority and the reliability of Scripture is the unique predictive prophecies that we find all through the Bible, and this was one of them. So, man, Joseph and Mary's road trip was way more important than they knew at the time. Well, there was also a group of shepherds who were watching their flocks on the hillside outside of Bethlehem. They were told by an angel that if they were willing to take a road trip into Bethlehem, they could be the welcoming committee for the arrival of the Son of God. Dude, all you got to do is saddle up, find a baby wrapped in cloth, laying in a manger, you'll be good to go. So they put their sheep, they got them all squared away, and they hit the road. And man, I can just see these shepherds rolling into Bethlehem going, hey, y'all hear about any babies being born today? Any babies born today? Anybody? No? No? And then they start looking. They just start looking in every stable in that community until finally there's Joseph and Mary uh, and Jesus lying in a manger. And man, they told Joseph this crazy story about the angels saying the Messiah's in that little town. And Joseph and Mary told them their story about how the angels had come to them. And everybody in that stable was just filled with a sense of wonder and shock and awe at all that God had done. But today we're going to dig into another road trip in Matthew chapter 2. So open your Bible to Matthew 2. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 2. Oop, I got my Christmas Eve invitation bookmark. I hope you all got these and handed these things out. I gave one out to the bug man that uh, sprayed my office the other day, and he was excited to get one. So I hope you'll do the same thing. All right. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to look at a road trip that a group of Babylonian power brokers and social influencers took they followed a sign from God that caused them to travel all the way from Iran to Israel so that they could meet the baby Jesus. So look with me at Matthew chapter 2. Here's how the story of the wise men begins. It says in verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and man, we have come to worship him. Now, these guys are called magi. They were political advisors. They were astronomers, scientists, basically. Uh, and friends, God used a celestial anomaly to draw them into the Christmas story. And again, it was because of a unique, specific, predictive prophecy that had come into play when that star showed up. Now, way back in the 6th century B.C., the prophet Daniel was a captive in the Babylonian Empire because Babylon had defeated Israel in war. And friends, because of Daniel's character and because of the Lord's amazing favor on his life, he rose to prominence in Babylon and became a leader of the king's advisors, which were called the Magi. Now, Daniel prophesied in Daniel chapter 9 that uh, hundreds of years later, <clears throat> at a very specific time, God would raise up a mighty king, and the Jews would call him the Messiah, and he would be born in Israel, and he would lead the people of God back to God, and a special star would mark his birth. And if you want to read it, read it for yourself. So when the Magi saw this celestial anomaly appear in the sky in the exact time frame that Daniel predicted, they put two and two together and assumed, <coughs> excuse me, this is a miraculous fulfillment of an ancient prophecy. And dude, they saddled up, and they started their road trip to Israel to welcome and to worship this new king. Now, can I tell you my opinion on something? I think the Magi is Matthew's favorite part of the Christmas story. I think this is his favorite part of the story. Just think about it. Look at your Bible. He gives more ink to the story of the Magi than anything else in the Christmas story. And he's the only one of the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John gospel writers that actually does that. He doesn't give us any details about the birth of Jesus. He never even mentions the manger, the stable, or the shepherds. 
But he did not want us to miss the fact that God chose a group of pagan scientists and led them a thousand miles across the Middle East by a star because he had chosen them to meet and worship the Lord Jesus because they could do something that only they could do. And I think I know why Matthew loved this story so much. Because in a very real sense, this is Matthew's story. And hear me, this is your story. This is your story. We'll talk about that in a minute. Now, let's look again at this uh, opening statement. Uh, the Magi arrive in Jerusalem, and they say, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, a lot of people get tripped up over this star thing. So let me talk about this star that the Magi followed to Jerusalem. Now, if you believe in God, you should have no problem believing that God is able to create a celestial object that would guide the wise men to Israel. I'm just not sure he had to. And friends, one of the reasons I think that is because of something that is happening over Savannah, right over our heads tonight. Now, Dr. Craig Chester is the past president of the Monterey Institute for Research in Astronomy in Monterey, California. And as an astronomer, he wrote an intriguing article in the infamous magazine about the star of Bethlehem. And he said, you know, with computers, we can actually reverse the movement of the stars and go all the way back and look at the exact appearance of the sky and the stars at the time of the birth of Jesus. And then he documents this fascinating series of astrological events that happened in the year three and in the year two BC. Now you need to keep in mind that our calendars are, are two or three years off of actually syncing up with the actual birth of Jesus. But Dr. Chester says in, this, in September of three BC, the planet Jupiter that represented kingship to those folk back in the day, came in conjunction with Regulus, which is the brightest star in the constellation of Leo, which is associated with the line of Judah for the Jewish people. And from an ancient perspective, the royal planet approached the royal star in the royal constellation representing Israel. And friends, this was an exceptionally rare spectacle that could not have been missed by the Magi. Now, if you want to see just a minor example of it, go out tonight. And you can see something that has not happened in a long time, and it's not going to happen again for a long time. Just look south, and you will see what appears to be a really bright star, but it is not. It is the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn. And they are so closely aligned right now, they look like a star, and they will be most closely aligned on December 21st. And friends, that's happening just as a natural part of God's light show over our heads tonight. Now, you and I both know that God is so powerful, he could have created a temporary anomaly that would hover a mile over the stable in Bethlehem if he wanted to. We believe that because we believe what Mary said in Luke chapter 1, nothing is impossible with God. But the apostle Paul, who is one of the greatest skeptics who ever became a follower of Jesus, wrote in Galatians chapter 4, he said, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. There is a timing in history and in our world that Christmas honors. And it is intriguing to me to think that the God who created our amazing, perfectly synchronized cosmos with its intricately patterned planetary and stellar orbits could have chosen to arrange for the movement of the planets and the stars to align in a dramatic way at precisely the same time that he chose for Jesus to be born on earth. 
Now, I know what some of y'all who are students of the Bible are thinking right now. Kim, what about verse 9? What about verse 9 where it says, After they heard from the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And man, when they saw that star, they were overjoyed. Dr. Chester says, you know, a planet normally moves eastward through the stars, but it regularly executes a retrograde loop. Consequently, it actually appears to stop, to slow down and then come to a full stop. And he said, we absolutely know for certain that Jupiter, Jupiter performed a retrograde loop in 2 BC. And so the wise men could certainly have been overjoyed to see the star appear to reach its stopping point just as they reached the, the city of Bethlehem, the city of David, where the scripture says that the king of Israel and the Messiah would be born. But let me just say this, regardless of the mechanics, regardless of how this all worked out, these magi were brilliant scholarly men, but they were not pompous, arrogant men. They were spiritual explorers and they were looking for truth and they found the truth in a little house in Bethlehem. Now I'm getting ahead of myself. So look, go back to your Bible, look at verse three, look at verse three. It says, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Now, King Herod was one of the most ruthless puppet kings in the Roman Empire. Uh, he loved his position. He loved his power. He thought he had worked hard to get it, and he was totally paranoid about losing it to anybody. Now, Herod was also an unusually violent king. He actually had a number of his cabinet members and his court assassinated because he began to suspect them. He had one wife and several of his sons murdered because he feared that they were going to challenge his absolute power. And so when the Magi assume that, you know, they assume that if there's a new king, he's going to be born in the palace, right? And so they knock on the door of the palace and say, hey, where's the new king? And man, that set off all of the psychopathic, you know what I'm talking about? The cold calculating instincts in King Herod. And when it says that he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him, <laughs> that was like the understatement of the decade. But ironically, look at verse four. When he had called together all of, all of the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, what are we talking about? Uh, these are Hebrew Bible scholars. They're experts on the Old Testament, right? He asked them, <coughs> where does the Old Testament say the Messiah will be born? And they knew the answer. I mean, bam, just like that. They said, in Bethlehem. He will be born in Bethlehem in Judea. They replied, because this is what the prophet has written. And Micah, the prophet, wrote this in chapter 5 of his book. He said, you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler, and he will shepherd my people Israel. And that's right there in Micah chapter 5, written 700 years before this event occurs. So when Herod called the Magi secretly, and he found out from them the exact time the star appeared, you know why he was interested in that? He wanted to know how old this threat was. This kid's a threat to my throne. I want to know how old he is. And then he sent them to Bethlehem. He said, go and search carefully for this child. And as soon as you find him, you report to me. You report to me so that I can go and worship him as well. Now, I'm assuming these wise men uh, had a ton of emotional intelligence. And man, I, it just seemed like they, they're the kind of guys who could read a room. I mean, they were politically savvy. They had to know that the message they had just delivered was not good news to Herod, regardless of what he said. And so their road trip's not over. Look at verse 9. After they heard the king, they went on their way. <clears throat> the star they had seen uh, when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. 
And when they saw the star, man, they were overjoyed. Now, you know why they were overjoyed? The Magi believed that God had chosen to lead them. They believed God was leading them, and they were right. Dude, think about it. They followed a sign to Jerusalem. And when they got to Jerusalem, they heard from the Scripture that they were supposed to go to Bethlehem, and that's where Jesus would be, just six miles away, which confirmed the fact that the sign they saw actually aligned with God's Word. Now, look at me. This is super important. If you ever think you got a sign from God, a vision from God, a dream, a feeling from God, and it disagrees with God's word, it is not from God. It doesn't matter how real it feels, doesn't matter how powerful it is, it doesn't matter how many of your dumb friends say, ooh, that's God. If it disagrees with the Bible, it's from your ego, or it's from your appetite, or from your desire, or from the devil. But if it disagrees with the Bible, it is absolutely not from God. Think about it. God can and will use signs to get your attention, but you have to listen to the word to get to Jesus. I mean, I thank God for sunsets and stars and harvest moons and mountains and oceans, and they're amazing and they're dramatic and they move you and they make you think about how small you are compared to the you know, giant intelligent creator who brought all this about. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, dude, this is universal. Paul says when you stand before God, you will have no excuse for not believing in God just because of what you can learn about him from the creation. But friends, let me tell you, seeing a moving sunset will not explain how you can find forgiveness. It will not explain God's grace to you. Only the gospel can do that. Listen, being moved by the birth of your own new baby can fill you with wonder but it does not explain why the creator of that baby loves you and chose you and died on a cross for that little baby's future sins. And it's worse than that, friends. Just hearing God's word is not enough. Coming to church, hearing the gospel, that's not enough. You've got to agree with it. You've got to submit to it. Friends, King Herod and the Hebrew scholars in Jerusalem saw the same signs the Magi saw. They heard the same prophecy from the book of Micah that the Magi heard. They just didn't do a stinking thing about it. And you know, 30 years later, <clears throat> when Jesus was grown and he started his ministry and he's teaching everywhere, he had a phrase that he liked to use. And he used it over and over and over again in the New Testament. Matthew records this for us in Matthew chapter 11, verse 15. Jesus would say, whoever has ears, let him hear. If you've got ears, put them to work, bro. If you got ears, let him hear, because Jesus knew exactly what the Magi found out in that palace that day. Not everybody who listens to the good news actually hears it or wants to. I got a lot of unbelieving friends. You know why they believe? They don't want to believe. They don't want there to be a God. They don't want to submit to anybody. They don't want it to be true. And so they find a reason to think it's not true. That's what C.S. Lewis did. C.S. Lewis said he was the most unwilling convert in the history of the world. He just had too much integrity to not put his faith in Jesus. We'll talk about that in a minute. Because <clears throat> we're almost done with this road trip. Look at verse 11. It says in verse 11, on coming to the house, they saw the child and his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Now think about that. These wealthy, brilliant, educated, political operators 
bowed down and worshiped him. Look at the posture of these great, powerful, wealthy men from another country. They arrive at the home of Joseph and Mary and they tell them their story. And then Joseph and Mary tell them their story. And then here's this little toddler who's just learning to walk and they bow down and worship him. Now, a couple years ago, Pastor Dave Allgaier told me about a TED talk that was given by a Harvard professor named Amy Cuddy. She's a social psychologist. And she talks, in this, uh, she talks about how your posture can affect your thinking and literally, you know, how your thinking can affect your posture. And it's a fascinating talk. She shares a really powerful personal testimony at the end of that talk. And let me tell you, 59 million people have watched this video. I mean, it's 20 minutes long, it's amazing. But she talks about the two basic postures and the internal thinking they represent. She said, you know, you got people who have big posture. They don't have to be big people to have big posture. They're, they're open. I mean, you see them, their arms are wide. They talk, they move like this when they talk. <laughs> you know, when they stand and sit, they take up a lot of space. You know what I mean? And I mean, that posture communicates boldness. It kind of says, here I am, y'all. This is my space. I'm comfortable in this world. I got this. They just naturally go to the Superman pose. That's how they do it, right? Or the Wonder Woman pose. Now, I would have put a picture up there, but Wonder Woman needs to learn a few things about modesty before she gets in my sermon. Can I hear amen? That's what I'm talking about. But anyway, all right, you know what I'm saying? It's just got kind of that, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Boldness, natural confidence, internal confidence. It kind of communicates that. Now, at the other end of the spectrum are people who lack that boldness. And they lack that confidence. And consequently, Ms. Cuddy says, they spend their lives physically trying to make themselves small. I mean, their physical posture actually reflects how they feel on the inside. You see them. They're sitting there with their arms folded all the time. They got their legs crossed when they're sitting down. They're clutching themselves and they got their hand on their neck, which means don't cut my head off, you know, or something like that. I mean, you look at them. It's like they're trying to physically collapse and make themselves small. And her point is, you know, if you can learn to carry yourself with, as if you understood who God made you to be, with a sense of boldness and confidence, if you could learn to carry yourself that way, you would actually start to feel and act with boldness and confidence. Now, take that and let's apply it to these wise men. It says, coming into the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Now, these are not fearful, insecure guys. <laughs> They're not. They just walked into a foreign palace, uninvited, and said, hey, Where's the new king? Bold, confident leaders. But when they meet Jesus, dude, something really good starts to happen inside them. Something spiritual starts emerging from within them when they meet this miraculous baby and physically, and I think intentionally, out of respect, they make themselves small and worship him. These magi are changing. They're humbling themselves. They're showing honor where honor is due. They're not becoming small. They're just physically acknowledging the greatness of Jesus. He is more. He is more than me. Which is pretty amazing humility from such accomplished and powerful and connected people. But totally appropriate when you meet Jesus face to face. 
And then it says they opened their treasures and they presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now these are very symbolic gifts. One has to do with royalty. One has to do, you know, with being a priest. One has to do with, uh, you know, dying a sacrificial death. But let me ask you a question. When these jokers, these are hyper expensive gifts, right? Now, when they gave them to Joseph and Mary in that little house in Bethlehem, what do you think Joseph and Mary did with them? You think they built a display case for them? Then they put them up on a shelf so everybody came to visit would see them? I don't. I think they liquidated them. I think as soon as those wise men were gone, dude, they were down on the market selling that stuff. Because in the very next paragraph, we're going to see that the angel of the Lord warns Joseph, bro, get your family out of Bethlehem. King Herod is going to launch a genocide. He's going to kill all the male babies in Bethlehem under two years of age in an attempt to kill Jesus because he thinks Jesus is a threat to his power. And I'm sure as Joseph and Mary were making their way to the Jewish community in Alexandria, they were thanking God that he sent those magi to provide for their financial needs as they were making that trip and getting settled in another country. And here's how their road trip ended. It says in verse 12, then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, the Magi departed for their own country another way. Now think about this. These men commit civil disobedience. They commit civil disobedience. Man's law is now in conflict with God's word. And so they're believers. Of course, they will put God's word above man's law. And so the Magi defy King Herod's orders. Dude, that's dangerous. They do not return as ordered and tell him where he can find Jesus because God told them in a dream not to. Now, they can obey God or they can obey the king. If they obey God, then they're going to get on the wrong side of the government and put their lives at risk and become fugitives and have to get out of the country by another way. And friends, that is exactly what they do. Dude, they pull a Jason Bourne and Herod never sees them again. But I love the way Matthew ends this passage, and I don't want you to miss this. When Matthew says they went home by another way, he uses the Greek word for way that he uses very often in his book to refer to another way of life. For example, in Matthew chapter 7, he, he quotes Jesus as, as talking about the narrow way. And Jesus says, you know, there's a broad way uh, that leads to destruction, and it's an easy way, and many will, find, many will choose that way. But there's also a narrow way, and it's a difficult way, and it leads to eternal life, and only a few are going to find that. And so, man, you need to make sure you're one of those few. In Matthew chapter 21, Matthew quotes Jesus talking about the way of righteousness. He's talking about how prostitutes and tax collectors are, are, are turning from their sin, and they're turning to the way of righteousness, and how awesome that is. And, of course, those Jewish teachers and officials were ticked off about that. They were angry that these sinners were coming to salvation because they just didn't like those kind of folks. But Jesus loved them. Jesus loved them. And Matthew loved Jesus because he was a tax collector. He was one of those guys who found Jesus and then chose another way. And I wonder if Matthew is telling us that the wise men didn't just go home by another route. Dude, they went home as different people. They were different people. They had chosen to see a miraculous sign. And then they had been instructed by the scripture. And then they had been led to worship Jesus. And dude, they were directed home as sons of God. That's a pretty good road trip, amen? That's a pretty good road trip, y'all. Now, before you close your Bible and head off on your own little road trip, can I leave you with a couple steps that I hope you will consider between now and Christmas Eve? Christmas Eve services start on Tuesday night. 
Hope you guys are coming. Invite all your friends. It's going to be awesome. But here are a couple things I hope you'll consider between now and Christmas Eve. Number one, would you consider worship this Christmas with a spirit of humility? Take a posture of humility. This is not weakness. This is strength from a position of strength. Humble yourself because, friends, I'm telling you, you are in this story. And I am in this story. You know who I am in this story? Herod. That's who I started out as. And that's who you started out as. Herod. We all start out as Herod. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. It doesn't want to. And dude, just like Herod, I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I don't want anybody imposing their will on me. Dude, I ain't having it. And let me tell you, that's what sin does to every human heart. It makes us resent and bow up and rebel against God. We resent him asking us for anything. I mean, come on, man. When you want to be the king and then somebody else comes along and says they're the king, somebody got to give in. Amen. <laughs> Somebody's got to give in. And let me tell you, in every human heart, there's that little Herod who wants to rule and have it their way. And they're threatened by Jesus because Jesus compromises your own sense of sovereignty. The sense that you are in control of your destiny. But friend, hear me. If you live like Herod, it won't matter how many possessions or how much a power you accrue, you will die like Herod. Alone, disrespected, lost. Or you could be like the Magi. You could be like Matthew. Listen, I think this is why Matthew gives so much ink to this story. You know, when we get to heaven, I'm going to ask Matthew about this. And he's going to go, dude, I was Herod. What you talking about, man? I was a tax collector. I was a money worshiper. I was proud. Dude, I betrayed my own people to increase my power and my possessions. And people hated me for it. And I didn't give a rip. I laughed all the way to the bank. Dude, I was just stacking it up. Which doesn't mean his life was actually working for him. He was lost. He lost his way until he meets Jesus. And by God's grace, his heart opens to Jesus and everything about him starts to change. And so he writes this chapter about Herod and the Magi so you and I will see the contrast and realize that your sin is either going to harden you to God or it's going to open your heart up to God. Now, you know, we have a ministry here that we call the Sunshine Girls. Awesome ministry. It's a, a ministry led by women in our church and their target are women in the adult entertainment industry. And so these ladies in our church, they bake cookies every week. <laughs> they take meals to them. They pray with these dancers. They love on them. They call on them when they're sick, man. They, they just try to befriend them. And here's what they've taught me. The sin and the pain that led some of those dancers to that place makes some of those ladies really hard toward God. But the same sin and the same pain makes some of them really open to God. Some are like Herod. Some humble themselves and become like the Magi and like Matthew. One of those ladies was thanking me for the way our church just loved her and led her to Jesus. And, you know, she'd gotten out of that life and she was walking with the Lord. And, and I mean, she said, just by God's grace, you know what, I, 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 am, I am on another path. <laughs> I am living another way. And she was so thankful. But she said, Cam... 
There are two things that are true of everybody in this life. And the louder they complain when you talk to them about it, the louder they deny it, the more true it is. Number one, we have all been hurt bad. And we wonder if anybody cares. And number two, no matter how much we think we're making, we know this ain't working. This is not working. Thank you. Thank you for the people of Compassion that led me to Jesus so I could take another way. Now this Christmas, when you feel yourself tensing up because God's asking you for something, resisting God, resisting Jesus, resisting his word, just remember, that's natural. That's what Herod did. But that's not what you have to do. You could tap into something supernatural. You, you could, like these powerful, impressive magi, Take a posture of humility and submit to Jesus today. Be baptized today and then let him lead you in another way. You could. You could on the chat. You could do it. Here's number two. Would you worship this Christmas with a sense of expectation? <laughs> you know, expectation. Listen, I don't want to get goofy here, but dude, look for the sign. Look for a sign from God, right? I mean, God chose these magi by giving them a sign that would mean something to them. They were scientists. They were astrologers. Astronomers. <laughs> astrologers are quacks. But anyway, astronomers. Uh, and, and, you know, he gave them a special star, right? But listen, the star was not enough. The star led them to God's word. And God's word led them to Jesus. And brother, he is enough. He is enough, but only he is enough. And he loves you so much that, man, he'll be reaching out to you, dude. And when he does, can I just say, go with it. Come on, man, you've been resistant all your life. Is it working for you? You know it's not. And so when you see a sign for the Lord, dude, go with it. You know, many years ago, I watched a television adaptation of The Miracle Worker. And this is a compelling story of two fierce women with great resolve. One of them was named Helen Keller. And the other one was named Annie Sullivan. And Helen was born in 1880. And before she was two years of age, she contracted this horribly high fever that left her blind, deaf, and mute. It was horrible. She was in a prison of silence and darkness her entire life. When Helen was seven years old, Annie Sullivan, a young, partially blind teacher, moved to Alabama to live in the Keller's home and serve as Helen's teacher. And Helen's behavior was so horrible and it was so abusive that Helen's brother, James, tried to convince Annie to just quit. I mean, why would you put up with this? My sister's awful. Just quit. And she wasn't having it. <laughs> Miss Sullivan was not. She didn't even consider it. She was resolved to help Helen function in a world of sight and sound. But let me tell you, Helen was just as stubborn as her teacher. And uh, Helen was locked in this frightening, lonely world where she was misinterpreting every single thing Annie did to try to help her. And it was a battle of wills. I mean, over and over, Annie would press sign language into Helen's palm, and then Helen would just pull back, and then Annie would, you know, persist, and she would try to do it again. And then during one red-hot, angry exchange out by the water pump, Annie placed one of Helen's hands under a spout of flowing water, and on the other hand, she spelled out W-A-T-E-R. And she did it over again. And Helen would pull back. She'd go, no, W-A-T-E-R. And over and over and over she did it. And, and then all of a sudden, in a dramatic moment, 
there's a breakthrough. And Helen stopped. And she placed her hand on her teacher's hand and she repeated those words, W-A-B-E-R. And, and, and Annie just beamed. And then she lifted Helen's hand up to her own cheek and she just nodded, yes, 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 water. And then Helen spelled it again and again. And then Helen jumped up and she drug Annie all over the yard, spelling out words, G-R-O-U-N-D. P-O-R-C-H, P-U-M-P. And I mean, it was just like a, she, she just wanted to know whatever. She got it, man. She finally understood what the sign meant. And she went another way. Now, friends, this Christmas could be that for you. Dude, God broke into our world at Christmas so you would get it. So you would understand that Jesus loves you. He loves you too much to leave you in the dark. He took a road trip to where we are. He is the teacher. He is not going to sit back while you mess out. And so he entered into our world, and he sends us signals and messages all the time. H-O-P-E, L-I-F-E, L-O-V-E, S-A-V-E-D. And every now and then, a spiritual explorer will look up and see that sign and be led to the scripture and Jesus. And I'm praying you will be one of them. I'm praying this Christmas you will be one. That when God sends you the sign, you will be faithful and let it lead you to the Bible. And then when the Bible tells you what to do, humble yourself and let it lead you to worship Jesus. And in just a minute, I'm going to turn this over to our campus pastors. Before I do that, I want to pray. I want to pray there will be some wise men and women who will humble themselves before Jesus today. Father, thank you. Thank you for having Matthew put this story. And I, I get it. <laughs> you probably look at thinking, this is a mirror of what happened to me 30 years later. And I'm so glad it was. I'm so glad that throughout Jesus' life and throughout history since, wise men and women have seen your thumbprint on our world. They've seen some sign of your presence in our world. That has led them to the church. That's led them to the scripture. That has led them to Jesus. And today, they're taking another way. And I pray that will happen this day. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.